TED Audio Collective. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm your host, Elise Hugh. The pandemic is deadly, economically devastating, and traumatizing to the social fabric. But if there's one crisis that's more severe and more potentially devastating, it's climate change. So today on the show, we have climate advocate Al Gore. He weaves how he's thinking about these two crises we're facing into one conversation with head of TED, Chris Anderson. And stick around for this one. I know it's going to be a bit longer than usual, but it's worth it. There's a lively debate about geoengineering halfway through that's pretty priceless. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. So a huge pleasure to welcome for this conversation Vice President Al Gore. He served for eight years as Vice President of the United States under Bill Clinton, uh, during which time he among many other things, elevated questions of science and the environment. Um, He came within one little hanging chad of becoming president. And, And then since then, I think has done more than any other human being over the last 20 years to, to really elevate issues of the climate crisis to us, to us all. Hi, Chris. Al, welcome. So look, just Six months ago, I mean, it seems a lifetime ago, but it really was just six months ago, climate seemed to be on the lips of every thinking person on the planet. Um, Recent events seem to have swept it all away from our attention. How worried are you about that? You know, I think this time uh, people are reacting uh, differently to the climate crisis in the midst of these other great challenges that have uh, taken over our awareness uh, appropriately. Uh, One reason is uh, something that you mentioned. People get the fact that when scientists are warning us in ever more dire terms and setting their hair on fire, so to speak, it's best to listen to what they're saying. And I think that lesson has uh, begun to sink in in a new way. Another similarity, by the way, is that the climate crisis, like the COVID-19 pandemic, has revealed in a new way the shocking injustices and inequalities and disparities that affect uh, communities of color uh, and and low-income communities. 
There are differences. Uh, the climate crisis has effects that are not measured in, in years, as the pandemic is, but consequences that are measured in centuries and even longer. And the other difference is that instead of uh, depressing economic activity to deal with the climate crisis, as nations around the world have had to do with COVID-19, uh, we have the opportunity to create tens of millions of new jobs. That sounds like a, a political phrasing, but it's literally true. Uh, for the last five years, the fastest growing job in the U.S. has been solar installer. The second fastest has been wind turbine technician. And uh, the Oxford uh, Review of Economics just uh, a few weeks ago uh, pointed the way to a very jobs-rich recovery if we emphasize renewable energy and sustainability technology. So I think we are crossing a tipping point, and you need only look at the recovery plans that are being presented in nations around the world to see that they're very much focused on a green recovery. I mean, one obvious impact of the pandemic is that it's brought the world's economy to a shuddering halt, um, and thereby you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, how big an effect has that been? And is it unambiguously good news? Well, it's a little bit of an illusion, uh, Chris, and you need only look back to the Great Recession in 2008 and nine, when there was a 1% decline in emissions, but then in 2010, they came roaring back during the recovery with a 4% increase. The latest estimates are that emissions will go down by at least 5% during this uh, um, induced coma, as economist Paul Krugman uh, perceptively described it. Uh, but whether it goes back the way it did after the Great Recession is in part up to us. And if these uh, green recovery plans are actually implemented, and I know many countries uh, are determined to implement them, then we need not uh, repeat that pattern. After all, this whole process is occurring uh, during a, um, a period when the cost of renewable energy and electric vehicles, batteries, and a, a range of other sustainability approaches are continuing to fall in, in uh, price, and they're becoming much more competitive. Just a quick uh, reference uh, to how fast this is. Five years ago, electricity from solar and wind was cheaper than electricity from fossil fuels in only 1% of the world. This year, it's cheaper in two-thirds of the world. And five years from now, it will be cheaper in virtually 100% of the world. Uh, EVs will be cost-competitive within uh, two years and then will continue falling in price uh, and so there are uh, changes underway that could uh, interrupt the pattern we saw after the Great Recession. I think I've heard it said that the fall in emissions caused by the pandemic isn't that much more than actually the fall that we will need every single year if we're to meet um, emissions targets. I mean, is that true? And if so, doesn't that seem impossibly daunting? It does seem daunting, but first look at the number. That number came from a study a little over a year ago released by the IPCC as to what it would take to keep the Earth's temperatures from increasing 
more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, and yes, the annual reductions would be significant on the order of what we've seen with the pandemic. And yes, that does seem daunting. However, uh, we do have the opportunity to make some fairly dramatic changes. And the plan is not a, a, a mystery. You start with the two sectors that are closest to an effective transition, electricity generation, as I mentioned. And last year, 2019, if you look at all of the new electricity generation built all around the world, 72% of it was from solar and wind. Uh, and already, uh, without the continuing subsidies for fossil fuels, we would see many more of these plants being shut down. There are some new fossil plants being built, but many more are being shut down. Uh, and where transportation is concerned, the second sector ready to go. Uh, in addition to the cheaper prices for EVs, some uh, uh, 45 jurisdictions around the world, national, regional, uh, and municipal, where laws have been passed uh, beginning a phase out of internal combustion engines. So help us understand just the big picture here, um, Al. I think before the pandemic, uh, the world was emitting um, about 55 gigatons of what they call CO2 equivalent. So that includes other greenhouse gases like methane dialed up to be the equivalent of, of CO2. And I, am I right in saying that the IPCC, which is the global organization of scientists, is recommending that the, the only way to fix this crisis is to get that number from 55 to zero by 2050 at the very latest, and that even then that there's a chance that we will end up uh, with temperature rises more like two degrees Celsius rather than 1.5. I mean, that, is that, that, that's approximately the, the big picture of what the IPCC is recommending? That's correct. The global goal established in the Paris uh, conference uh, is to get to net zero on a global basis by 2050. And many people quickly add that that really means a 45 to 50% reduction by 2030 to make that pathway uh, to net zero feasible. And that, that kind of timeline is, is the kind of timeline where people can even imagine. It's just, it's hard to think of policy over 30 years. So, so that's actually a very good shorthand that humanity's task is to cut emissions in half by 2030, approximately speaking, which, which I think boils down to about a seven or eight percent reduction a year, something like that, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. Not which, quite, not quite that large, but, but uh, close, yes. This year, we've done it by basically shutting down the economy. You're talking about a way of doing it over the coming years that actually gives economic, some economic growth and a new job. So talk more about that. Well, in addition to doing the two sectors that I mentioned, we also have to deal with manufacturing and all the use cases that require temperatures of 1,000 degrees Celsius. And there are solutions there as well. We also have to tackle regenerative agriculture uh, there is the opportunity to sequester a great deal of carbon in topsoils uh, around the world by changing uh, the agricultural techniques. There is a farmer-led movement to do that. Uh, we need to also retrofit uh, buildings. Uh, we need to change our uh, management of uh, forests uh, and the ocean. But let me just uh, mention two things briefly. First of all, the high temperature use cases. 
Angela Merkel, uh, just 10 days ago, with the leadership of her minister, Peter Altmaier, uh, who's a good friend and a great public servant, have just embarked on a, a green hydrogen strategy uh, to make uh, hydrogen with a zero marginal cost uh, renewable energy. And we're building retrofits are concerned. Just a moment on this, because about 20 to 25 percent of the global warming pollution in the world and in the U.S. comes from inefficient buildings that were constructed uh, by companies and individuals who were trying to be competitive in the marketplace and keep their margins acceptably high and thereby skimping on insulation and the right windows and LEDs and the rest. Uh, and yet the person who or company that buys that building or leases that building, they want their monthly utility bills much lower. Uh, and we can retrofit buildings with a program that literally pays for itself over three to five years. And we can put tens of millions of people to work in jobs that by definition cannot be outsourced because they exist in every single community. Just going back to the hydrogen economy that you referred to there, when some people hear that, they think, oh, are you talking about hydrogen-fueled cars? And they've heard that that probably won't be a winning strategy. But you're, but you're thinking much more broadly than that, I think, that it's not just hydrogen as a, as a kind of storage um, mechanism to act as a buffer uh, for renewable energy. But also hydrogen could be essential for some of the other processes in the economy, like making steel... Uh, making cement that are, that are sort of fundamentally uh, carbon-intensive processes right now, but could be transformed if we had if we had much cheaper sources of hydrogen. Is that right? Yes, I was always skeptical about uh, hydrogen, Chris, uh, principally because it's been so expensive to to make it to crack it out of water, as they say. Um, but the game changer has been the incredible abundance of uh, solar and wind electricity and volumes and amounts that, that people didn't expect. And all of a sudden, it's cheap enough to use for these very en energy-intensive processes uh, like creating green hydrogen. I'm still a bit skeptical about using it in vehicles. Toyota's been betting on that for 25 years, and it hasn't really worked for them. Never say never, maybe it will, but I think it's most useful for these uh, high temperature industrial processes. And we already have a pathway for decarbonizing transportation with electricity that's uh, working extremely well. Tesla's going to be uh, soon the most valuable automobile company in the world already in the US and they're about to overtake Toyota. Uh, there is now a, a semi a truck company uh, that's uh, been stood up by Tesla and another that is going to be a, a hybrid with electricity and green hydrogen. So we'll see whether or not they can make it work in that application. But I think electricity is preferable for cars and trucks. Let me ask you, though, about nuclear. Some environmentalists believe that new generation nuclear power is, uh, is an essential part of the equation if we're to get to a truly clean energy future. Are you still pretty skeptical on nuclear, Al? Well, the market's skeptical about it, uh, Chris. Um, it's been a, a crushing disappointment for, for me and for so many. I used to represent Oak Ridge where nuclear energy began. And when I was a young congressman, I was a booster. I was very enthusiastic about it. But the cost overruns and the problems uh, 
in, in building these plants uh, have become so severe that utilities uh, just uh, don't have an appetite for them. It's become the most expensive source of electricity. Now, let me hasten to add that there are some older nuclear reactors uh, that have uh, more useful time that could be added onto their lifetimes. And like a lot of environmentalists, I've come to the view that if they can be determined uh, to be safe, uh, they, they should be allowed to continue operating uh, for a, a time. But where new nuclear power plants are concerned, here, here's a way to look at it. If you are, you've been a CEO, Chris, if you were the CEO of a, I guess you still are, uh, if you were the CEO of an electric utility and you told your executive team, I want to build a nuclear power plant, uh, two of the first questions you would ask are, number one, how much will it cost? And there's not a single engineering consulting firm that I've been able to find anywhere in the world that will give put their name on an opinion giving you a cost estimate. They just don't know. Uh, a second question you would ask is how long will it take to build it uh, so we can start selling the electricity? And again, the answer you will get is we have no idea. So if you don't know how much it's going to cost and you don't know when it's going to be finished and you already know that the electricity is more expensive than the alternate ways to produce it, that's going to be a little discouraging. And in fact, that's been the case for utilities around the world. Geoengineering is making extraordinary progress. Exxon is investing in technology. Exxon is investing in technology from global thermostat that seems promising. What do you think of these air and water carbon capture technologies? Well, um, you and I have talked about this before, Chris. I, I'm, I've been uh, uh, strongly opposed to... Uh, conducting an unplanned global experiment that could go wildly wrong. Uh, and most are, are really scared of that approach. However, the term geoengineering is a, a nuanced term that covers a lot. If you want to paint roofs white to reflect more uh, energy from uh, the the, the, the cityscapes, uh, that's not going to bring a danger of a runaway uh, effect. And there's some other things that are loosely called geoengineering like that, which are fine. But the idea of, of uh, blocking out the sun's rays, uh, that's insane, in my opinion. Uh, it turns out plants need sunlight for photosynthesis and uh, solar panels need sunlight for producing uh, electricity from the sun's rays and uh, the consequences uh, of changing everything we know and, and, and pretending that the consequences are going to precisely cancel out the unplanned experiment of global warming that we already have underway. Uh, you know, there are glitches in our thinking. One of them is called the single solution bias. And there are people who just... Uh, have a hunger to say, well, that one solution, we just need to latch onto that and do that and damn the consequences. Well, it's nuts. But let me push back on this just, just a little bit because, because so let's say that we agreed that a single solution, all or nothing attempt at geoengineering is, is, is crazy. But there are scenarios where the world looks at emissions and just sees in 10, 10 years time, let's say, that they are just not coming down 
fast enough and that we are in risk of several other liftoff events where that this train will just get away from us and uh, we will be we will see temperature rises of three, four, five, six, seven degrees and, and you know, all of civilization is at risk. Surely there is an approach to geoengineering that could be modeled in a way on the way that, that we approach medicine. Like for hundreds of years, people, we don't really understand the human body. People would try interventions and um, some of them would work and some of them wouldn't. Isn't, no one says in medicine, you know, go in and um, um, take a, an all or nothing decision on, on someone's life. But they do say, let's try some stuff. If, if an experiment can be reversible, if it's plausible in the first place, if there's reason to think that it might work, we actually owe it to the future health of humanity to try at least some types of tests to see what could work. So, so small tests to see whether, for example, seeding of something in the ocean might create, in a, in a non-threatening way, carbon sinks. Or maybe a, rather than filling the atmosphere with sulfur dioxide, a smaller experiment that was you know, was not that big a deal, but to see whether cost-effectively you could reduce the temperature a little bit, surely that, that isn't completely crazy and is at least something we should be thinking about in case these other measures don't work? Well, there have already been uh, such experiments to uh, seed the ocean to see if that can increase the uptake of CO2, and the experiments were uh, uh, an unmitigated failure, as many predicted they would be. But that, again, is uh, the kind of uh, approach that's very different from putting tinfoil strips uh, in the atmosphere orbiting the Earth. That was uh, the way that uh, uh, solar geoengineering proposal started. Now they're focusing on chalk. Uh, So we have chalk dust uh, uh, all over everything. Uh, But more serious than that uh, is the fact that it might not be (laughs) reversible. But Al, that, that, that's the rhetoric response. Is that really the, like, the, the amount of dust that you need to make, to, to drop by a degree or two wouldn't result in chalk dust over everything. It would, be, it would be unbelievably, like it would be less than the dust that people experience every day anyway. I don't know. First of all, I don't know how you do a, a small experiment in the atmosphere. And, and secondly... If we were to take uh, that approach, we would have to steadily increase the amount of whatever substance they decided. We'd have to increase it every single year. And if we ever stopped, then there would be uh, a a, a sudden uh, snapback, Uh, like the picture of Dorian Gray, that old uh, book and and movie, where suddenly all of the things uh, caught up with you at once. Um, the, the fact that uh, anyone is even considering these approaches, Chris, is a, a measure of a feeling of desperation that some have uh, begun to feel, which uh, I understand, but I don't think uh, uh, it should drive us toward uh, these reckless uh, experiments. And by the way, using your analogy uh, to uh, experimental cancer treatments, for example, You usually get informed consent from the patient. Uh, Getting informed consent from 7.8 billion people who have no voice and no say, uh, who are subject to the potentially catastrophic consequences of this uh, 
wackadoodle uh, proposal that somebody comes up with to try to rearrange the entire Earth's atmosphere and uh, hope and pretend that it's going to cancel out the fact that uh, we're putting 152 million tons of heat-trapping man-made global warming pollution into the sky every day. That's what's really uh, insane. A scientist uh, decades ago uh, uh, compared it this way. He said, if you had two people on a sinking boat and one of them, uh, one of them says, you know, we could probably use some mirrors to, to signal uh, to shore to get them to build a sophisticated wave-generating machine that will uh, cancel out uh, the rocking of the boat by these guys in the back of the boat. Or you could get them to stop rocking the boat. <laughs> and that's what we need to do. We need to stop what's causing the crisis. Yeah, but that, that's a great story. But if, but if the effort to stop the people rocking in the back of the boat is as complex as the scientific proposal you just outlined, whereas the experiment to stop the waves is actually as simple as telling the people to stop rocking the boat, that story changes. And I, I, just, I just think that I think you're right that the issue of informed consent is a really challenging one. But I mean, no one gave con informed consent to do all the other things we're doing to the atmosphere. And I, and I agree that the moral panic issue is, the moral hazard issue is, is, is worrying, that if, you, if we became dependent on geoengineering and, and took away our efforts to do the rest, that would be tragic. It, it just seems like I, I, wish, I wish it was possible to have a nuanced debate of people saying, you know what, there's multiple dials to a very complex problem. We're going to have to adjust several of them very, very carefully and keep talking to each other. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a goal to just try and have a, a more nuanced debate about this rather than all of that geoengineering can't work? Well, I've said some of it, uh, uh, you know, the, the benign forms that I've mentioned, uh, I'm not ruling those out, but blocking the sun's rays from the earth, uh, not only uh, do you affect 7.8 billion people, you affect the plants and the animals and the ocean currents and the wind currents. Uh, and natural processes uh, that we're in danger of disrupting even more. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, uh, techno-optimism is something I've engaged in uh, in the past, but to, to latch on to some brand new uh, technological solution to rework the entire Earth's natural system because somebody uh, thinks he's clever enough to do it in a way that uh, precisely cancels out the consequences of using the atmosphere as an open sewer for heat-trapping man-made gases, it's much more important to stop using the atmosphere as an open sewer. That's what the problem is. All right, well, we agreed that that is the most important thing for sure. And speaking of which, do, do you believe the world needs carbon pricing? And uh, is there any prospect for getting there? Yes, I, I, yes, uh, to both questions. Uh, for decades, uh, almost every economist uh, who's asked about the climate crisis says, well, we just need to put a price on carbon. And, and I have certainly been uh, in favor of that uh, approach, but it is daunting. Nevertheless, there are 43 uh, jurisdictions around the world that already have a price uh, on carbon. We're seeing it in Europe. They finally straightened out their carbon pricing mechanism. It's an emissions trading version of it. We have places that have put a tax on 
carbon. That's the approach the economists prefer. Uh, China is beginning to implement its national emissions trading program. California and quite a few other states in the U.S. are already uh, doing it. Uh, it can be given back to uh, people in a revenue-neutral way. But uh, the opposition to it, Chris, uh, which you've noted, is impressive enough that uh, we do have to take other approaches. And, and I would say most climate activists are now saying, look, let's don't make the best the enemy of the better. There are other ways to do this as well. We need every solution we can uh, we can rationally uh, employ, including by regulation. Uh, and often when the political difficulty of a proposal becomes too uh uh, difficult uh, in a market-oriented approach, the, the the fallback is with regulation. And it's been given a bad uh, name, regulation, but many uh, places are doing it. I mentioned uh, phasing out internal combustion engines. That's uh, an example. There are uh, 160 cities in the U.S. that have already, by regulation, ordered that uh, within a date certain, 100% of all their electricity will have to come from renewable uh, sources. And again, the market forces that are driving the cost of renewable energy and sustainability solutions ever downward, uh, that gives us the, the wind at our back. Uh, this is working in our favor. I mean, the pushback on carbon pricing often goes further from parts of the environmental movement, which is to a pushback on the role of business in general. Business is actually, or capitalism is blamed for the climate crisis uh, because of unrelenting growth. Um, to the point where people don't trust, many people don't trust business to be part of the solution. The, the only way to go forward is to regulate, to force businesses to do the right thing. Do you, do you think that business has to be part of the solution? Well, definitely, because uh, the allocation of capital needed uh, to solve this crisis is greater than what governments uh, can handle. Many businesses are beginning to play a, a very constructive role. They're, they're getting a demand that they do so from their customers, from their investors, from, from uh, their boards, from their executive teams, from their families. And by the way, uh, the, the rising generation is demanding a, a brighter future. And when CEOs interview uh, potential new hires, they find that the new hires are interviewing them. And th th they want to make a, a nice uh, income, but they want to be able to tell their family and friends and peers that they're doing something more than just making money. One illustration of how this new generation is changing, Chris, there are 65 colleges in the U.S. right now where the college young Republican clubs have joined together to jointly demand that the Republican National Committee change its policy on climate lest they lose that entire generation. This is a global phenomenon. The Greta generation is now leading this in so many Ways uh, and if you look at the uh, the polling uh, again, the vast majority of young Republicans are demanding a change on climate policy. Th this is really a, a movement that is building still. Well, I was going to ask you about that because one of the most painful things, and I over the last twenty years, has just been how climate has been politicized, and certainly in the in the 
US. Um, you've probably felt yourself at the heart of that a lot of the time with people attacking you personally in the most merciless and unfair ways often. Um, do, I mean, do you really see signs that that might be changing, led by the next generation? Yeah, there's no question about it. I don't want to rely on polls too much. I've mentioned them already, but there was a, a new one that came out that looked at the wavering Trump supporters, uh, those who supported him strongly in the past and want to do so again. The number one issue, surprisingly to some, that is giving them pause is the craziness of President Trump and his administration on climate. I mean, you're, you've been the figurehead for raising this issue and uh, you happen to be um, a Democrat. Is, is there anything that you can personally do to, I don't know, to open the tent, to welcome people, to try and say this is beyond politics, dear friends? Yeah, well, I've tried all of uh, those things and maybe it's made a little positive uh, difference. I've worked with the Republicans extensively and, and you know, uh, well after I left... Uh, the White House. Uh, I had Newt Gingrich uh, and Pat Robertson and other prominent Republicans appear on national TV ads with me saying we've got to solve the climate crisis. But the petroleum industry has really doubled down in forcing discipline within the Republican Party. I mean, look at the attacks they've launched against the Pope when he came out with his uh, encyclical. Uh, and and was demonized, not by all, for sure. But there were uh, hawks uh, in the anti-climate movement who immediately started training their guns on Pope Francis. And there, there are many other examples. They enforce discipline and try to make it a partisan issue, even as Democrats reach out to try to, to make it bipartisan. I, I totally agree with you that it should not be a partisan issue. It, it didn't used to be, but it's been artificially uh, weaponized as an issue. I mean, the CEOs of oil companies also have kids who are talking to them. Do you, It feels like some of them are moving and are trying to invest and trying to find ways of being part of the future. Do you see signs of that? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that uh, business leaders, including in the oil and gas companies, are hearing from their families uh, uh, they're hearing from their friends. Uh, they're hearing from their employees. And, and by the way, we've seen in the in the tech industry some mass walkouts by employees who are demanding that some of the tech companies uh, do more and get serious. I'm so proud of Apple. Forgive me for uh, parenthetically praising Apple. You know, I'm on the board, but I'm such a big fan of Tim Cook and my colleagues at Apple. It's an example of a tech company that's really doing fantastic things. And there's some others as well. There are others in many industries, but the, the pressures on the oil and gas companies are quite extraordinary. You know, BP just wrote down $12.5 billion worth of oil and gas assets and said they're never going to see the light of day. Two-thirds of the uh, fossil fuels that have already been discovered uh, cannot be burned and will not be burned. And so that's a, a big economic risk to the global economy, like the subprime mortgage crisis. We've got $22 trillion of subprime carbon assets. And just yesterday, there was a major report that the fracking industry 
in the U.S. is seeing now a wave of bankruptcies because price of the fracked gas and oil has fallen below levels that make them competitive, make them economic. Is, is the shorthand of what's happened there that um, electric cars and electric technologies and solar and so forth have driven, have helped drive down the price of oil to the point where huge amounts of the reserves just can't be, can't be developed um, profitably. That's mainly it. The, the projections for energy sources in the next several years uniformly predict that electricity from wind and solar is going to continue to plummet uh, in price and uh, th- therefore uh, using gas uh, or coal to, to turn uh, steam turbines, uh, it, to, to make steam to turn the turbines is just not going to be economical. Similarly, the electrification of the transportation sector is having the same effect. Uh, some are also looking uh, at the the trend in national, uh, regional, and local governance. But but let me come back, uh, Chris, you, because we talked about business leaders. I think you were getting in a question a moment ago about capitalism itself, and I do want to say a word on that because there are a lot of people who say maybe capitalism is the basic problem. I think the current form of capitalism we have is desperately in need of reform, uh, the short-term uh, outlook is often mentioned, but the way we measure what is of value to us uh, is also at the heart of the crisis uh, of modern capitalism. Now, capitalism is at the base of every successful economy, and it balances supply and demand, unlocks a higher fraction of the human potential, and uh, it's not going anywhere, but it needs to be reformed. Because the way we measure what's valuable now ignores so-called negative externalities like pollution. It also ignores positive externalities like investments in education and healthcare, mental health care, family services. It ignores the depletion of resources like groundwater and topsoil and the web of living species. And it ignores the distribution of incomes and net worth so that we have, uh, when GDP goes up, people cheer uh, two, 2%, 3%, wow, 4%, and they think, great, but it's accompanied by vast increases in pollution, chronic underinvestment in public goods, uh, the depletion of irreplaceable natural resources, and the worst inequality crisis we've, we've seen in more than 100 years that is threatening the future of both capitalism and democracy. So we have to change it. We have to reform it. So reform capitalism, but don't throw it out. We're going to need it um, as a tool as we go forward if we solve this. Yeah, I think that's right. And just one other point, the worst environmental abuses uh, in the last hundred years have been in jurisdictions that experimented during the 20th century with the alternatives to capitalism on the left and right. Interesting. All right. Let's have one more question here. Are you encouraged by the ability of people to quickly adapt to the new normal due to COVID-19 as evidence that people can and will change their habits to respond to climate change? Uh, Yes, but I think we have to keep in mind um, that there is a crisis within this crisis. The the impact on uh, the African-American community, which I mentioned before, uh, on uh, the Latinx community, indigenous peoples, the highest infection rate is in the Navajo Nation right now. So some of these uh, questions uh, 
appear differently to those who, who are really getting the brunt uh, of this crisis. And it is unacceptable that we allow this uh, to continue. It feels one way to you and me and perhaps to many in our audience today, uh, but uh, for low-income communities of color, it's an entirely different crisis, and we owe it to them and to all of us uh, to get busy and, and start using the best science and, and, and solve this pandemic. You know, the, the phrase pandemic economics, somebody said the first principle of pandemic economics is take care of the pandemic. And we're not doing that yet. Uh, we're seeing the president try to goose the economy for his reelection, never mind the prediction of tens of thousands of additional American deaths. And that is just unforgivable, in my opinion. So, Al, you, along with um, others in the community, played a key role in encouraging Ted to launch this initiative called Countdown. Thank you for that. And I guess this, this conversation will, is continuing among many of us. If, if, if you're interested in climate watching this, check out the Countdown website um, at countdown.ted.com and um, be part of 1010-2020 when we're trying to put out an alert to the world that climate can't wait, that, um, that it really matters, and that there's going to be some amazing content free to the world on that day. I just th thank you, Al, for your inspiration and support in doing that. I wonder whether you could end today's session just by just painting us a picture, you know, like how might things roll out over the next decade or so? Just tell, tell us whether there is still a story of hope here. I'd be glad to uh, forgive. I got to get one plug in. I'll make it brief. July 18 through July 26, the Climate Reality Project is having a global training. Uh, we've already had 8,000 people register. You can go to climaterealitycom Now, a bright future. It begins with uh, all of the kinds of efforts that you've thrown yourself into in organizing Countdown, Chris. You and your team have been amazing to, to work with. And I'm so excited uh, about the Countdown Project. Ted has an unparalleled ability to, to spread ideas that are worth spreading, to raise consciousness, to enlighten people around the world. And it's needed for climate and the solutions to the climate crisis like it's never been needed before. And I just want to thank you for what you personally are doing to organize this fantastic Countdown program. Thank you. And the world, are we going to do this? Do you, think, do you think that humanity is going to pull this off and that we will, that our grandchildren are going to have beautiful lives where they can celebrate nature and not spend every day in fear of the next tornado or tsunami? I am optimistic that we will do it, uh, but uh, the answer is in our hands. Uh, we have seen dark times in uh, periods of the past, and we have risen to meet the challenge. We have limitations of our long uh, evolutionary uh, heritage and uh, elements of our culture, but we also have the ability to transcend our limitations. And when the chips are down and when survival is at stake and when our children and future generations are at stake, we're capable of more than we sometimes allow ourselves to think we can do. This is such a time, I believe we will rise to the occasion 
and we will create a bright, clean, prosperous, just, and fair future. I believe it with all my heart. Al Gore, uh, thank you for your life of work, uh, for all you've done to elevate this issue, and for spending this time with us now. Thank you.